All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James, and I'm your host. And today is my number 10 episode, 10th episode, everyone. Big deal. So for that 10th episode, you get the special treat. We're going to go to San Francisco. And I have an interview with David Hanna. He's the general manager of Tadich Grill in San Francisco, California. Before I jump to that interview, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Tadich Grill's history, and then we'll dive right in. So Tadich Grill opened up in 1849. Of course, at that time, it wasn't known as Tadich Grill, but uh, they opened up as a coffee shop. It was a coffee tent down on the wharf serving coffee to sailors, and over the years, that evolved into what it is today. What really stood out to me from the interview with David was that it was started by Croatian immigrants of of all the immigrants coming into the country. Three Croatian immigrants made their way to San Francisco and started the business. For me, that had personal significance. I've I've lived in Croatia. I love Croatia. And so anytime I hear anything about Croatia, my ears always perk up and, and I pay extra close attention. So without any further delay, here's my interview with David. Yeah, so let's have you start by introducing yourself. All right. Hi, my name is David Hanna. I'm the general manager of the Tadich Grill in San Francisco, California. Great. And uh, tell me a little bit about Tadich Grill. How long has it been open? Well, we've been open since uh, 1849. We're the longest, uh, we're the uh, oldest restaurant west of the Mississippi River and the third oldest restaurant in the country. We've been in uh, our current location now since 1967. We moved there and uh, bought the building and we'll be there hopefully forever. With a restaurant that's been open since 18, 1849, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of rich history. How has the restaurant changed over the years, or has it stayed pretty much the same? Well, uh, recent history, you know, probably since we've moved to the current location and, you know, into the 1900s, it's been pretty much the same. It's an old school uh, San Francisco kind of place, so um, a lot of casserole dishes, a lot of seafood. Uh, Chipino is definitely... Um, prevalent on our menu. I mean, that's definitely the most popular dish, and uh, and um, you know, we I mean, we sell thousands and thousands a year of uh, of Chipino. But when we first opened up, we were just a tent on the Long Wharf in uh, San Francisco's financial district, um, serving coffee and and eventually mesquite broiled fish to sailors as they come in off their boats. And we're still doing the mesquite broiling to this day, so it's that's a really long tradition that we've held on to. I read James Missioner's Alaska, and in in that book, when they start talking about the gold rush and everything in Alaska, that's how a lot of restaurants would pop up. They'd be these little tents and start serving, you know, filling a need, whatever they could fit in and sell to someone. That's that's what they would do, and. Sure. Uh, and so, when did it, when did Tadich Grill move into a uh, in, into a building? Uh, it wasn't too long after we opened. Uh, in so we were in 1849, we opened, and then in 1850, uh, they kind of 
landfilled where we had been in uh, in the bay, and uh, so we moved inland from there, and we were in a building in 1850. I was reading a little bit about the history online, and uh, tell me about some of the chefs that have come through, because uh, from what I can tell, you you don't really have a high turnover with with your your head chefs in the restaurant no no we don't i mean you know again of late it's been a little bit more uh there's been a little bit more turnover but um you know up until i'd say about uh eight years ago we've we'd only have uh eight head chefs in the entire time that we've had a rest had the restaurant um they've all they were all croatian and at one time uh, every person who worked there was Croatian. Uh, now, you know, we've got, we still have a few left, but it's uh, more of a melting pot like the United States is, you know. Um, but still, people in Croatia, uh, Croatians in general here in the Bay Area, they really, um, you know, they really hold high regard for Tadic Grill because of, uh, of the Croatian traditions and the history. That's interesting. So, was it started by Croatians? It was started. Yeah, it was started by three Croatian immigrants, and it's been Croatian owned since day one, and that's never going to change. Uh, our current owner, Mike Buich, uh, is is Croatian, obviously, and his uh, three daughters are starting to get more involved in the restaurant, even though they have careers outside of the restaurant. Um, they're starting to take more of an interest, and he's kind of. I want to say relinquishing, but you know, letting letting them be involved more and more in the in the operations as well, uh, so that he can pass it on to them at some point. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I I actually I've lived in Croatia for a few years, and I I love Croatia. So yeah, when our when our uh, executive, the last executive chef who was Croatian, when he went on vacation one time, went back there for a few weeks and sent us a picture back of him fishing. And he was the only guy on this lake in a boat. And it was just so serene looking and beautiful. It's like, oh, man, we got to go there. So nice. Yeah. If, if you haven't been, I highly recommend it. Yeah. It's up there on the list. I mean, my wife uh, and I love to travel. So it's definitely someplace we'll, uh, we'll hit one of these days. With a restaurant that's been open for that long, what would you say has been the, the secret to remaining relevant? for over a century? Well, I mean, the the restaurant's just a really special place. You know, the the way we treat our guests, um, you know, it's more like a, that you're coming into someone's house rather than you're going to a restaurant. I mean, we have, we have people who come in there and when they leave, they start crying because they were just so overwhelmed and happy to be there and, and they just don't want to go. Um, it's, uh, the, the thing with us is that it's, it's such a, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just such a tradition for people to come to the restaurant that they, that they get their family members involved. So it's like mothers bring the kids, you know, parents bring the kids and, and then the grandkids. And then it just, it just snowballs from there. I mean, you know, we talk to people all the time at the restaurant that are, you know, it's my fifth generation of bringing my family into the restaurant. It's like it's awesome. I mean, you know, you don't you don't see that in any place. And and I was just you know there last night, and and uh, people came in and 
they recognize their favorite waiter or they, you know, just wanted to stop by and say hi and it's hugs all around and, and it's just, it's a really different place. It's, it's no, unlike any restaurant I've ever, I've ever been at. And, uh, it's, it's just a wonderful feeling that people give you back to that, that it's just, you know, that it's so important in their lives that it makes it, it makes it really important to us to maintain that tradition. I mean, when I, when I first was interviewing with the, with Mike um, to become the GM, I was telling him it's just like it's a really awesome, daunting task to to take over the reins of the oldest restaurant in California, you know, and and the the traditions and and uh, and uh, responsibility of that is is pretty. <laughs> it can be pretty overwhelming at times. Right, right. You know, you know, a lot of yeah, a lot of businesses and uh, companies I've interviewed that have been open um, since the 1800s or even before, they have they, they all say the same thing. It it adds it adds a a certain character to it when mm-hmm. you're not just serving people that that found you online or just dropping by, but when you actually have that multi-generational, like, this is just a family thing. Every time we're in San Francisco, we go because that's what our family does. And and yeah. so you become part of people's family traditions, which I think is, yeah. is very and, unique. And it's not just tourists, too. I mean, it depends on the time of the year, but, you know, we're, we're a local restaurant just like any other one. And, and so people who live in the city, I mean, we've got regulars that come there, five times a week, you know, that come there every month. I mean, we have, you know, we have quote unquote regulars, these, this couple that lives in Midland, Texas, they own a restaurant down there. They travel up to the Bay area monthly and they come to the restaurant when they're, so they're in this, in San Francisco for like three days. They'll be at the restaurant like four times, lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner, and then fly away. You know, I mean, it's, it's really an amazing thing. And, 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 even for our tourists, I and mean, we, this I love telling the stories of these people who were vacationing from New York. They were in Paris, and they were having uh, the you know the first leg of their vacation in Paris, and they were sitting in a cafe talking to some locals there, and and they said, well, after we're done in Paris, we're going to go to San Francisco. And the people who lived in Paris said, you got to go to Botanicsville. So I mean, it's it's a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, that uh that's what that's how I first heard about you guys. Um so I'm based out of Utah and I was talking with my dad and uh the other day he was saying that he he had the day off and he almost he almost bought a plane ticket to San Francisco just to come out and eat your clam chatter. <laughs> so just a quick day trip which awesome. you know, I uh I think that's uh I think that speaks a lot to what you do. If if you have that kind of a draw or that kind of a pull, you know, it's more than just good food. Totally. Totally. Although, you know, that the one one thing that really um helps us as well, I think, is that we don't change the menu so often. You know, we you know, we have daily specials on the menu that change um, you know, like two or three items that kind of change on, on on a daily basis. The chef will find something cool or something fresh or, you know, it's in season or whatever. Um, but everything else stays exactly the same. And that's and people like that. People like to come in, you know, five years after being here and saying, oh, my God, you still have that, you know, the Petrali Sol or the Romanza casserole dish. And it's like, yeah, it's 
and and even on the menus that I've got, like I have menus that date back to the to '67, and there are dishes that have gone been on there the entire time. Do you do you ever feel like so? Some sometimes I'll go into a restaurant that's been open, you know, for a long time, not as long as Tadich Grill, but where they feel very dated and very, uh, very kind of out of place in today's world. Um, with things as they are in with with Tadich Grill, where they haven't changed so much over the year with the menu, do you feel like you do pretty good at at staying up to? what people want today in a restaurant? Well, we're lucky because the menu is so broad that, um, that it, it, it can, it can appeal to a lot of people. Like I said, the, the, the newer stuff, the, the, you know, the on-trend stuff that can be a special, a daily special that we'll run and, and play around with that kind of stuff. But, you know, we've got, a lot of salads. So if you want to eat healthy, you can certainly eat healthy. We've got a lot of broiled fish. We've got a lot of uh, rich casserole dishes. We have a lot of rich butter dishes. And, and uh, if you want, and we've got great steaks and we've got pork chops, we've got chicken. I mean, we've got everything. So, I mean, there's, there's going to be the only thing that we, that we haven't, you know, done really anything with is, is vegan. I mean, we, we really, there's nothing there other than a salad with oil and vinegar, which is, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, that's the only thing that we really haven't tried to um, cap, that, you know, we haven't tried to capture that market. And, and, and you know, I don't, we haven't had a real, a lot of call for that either. So it's not like something we're, we feel like we're missing out on. Um, right. But, but it's, uh, you know, other than that, the menu is just so, expansive that um that it's it'll appeal to anybody again with a restaurant that's been open for so long i'm sure there's a lot of rich history and a lot of stories that the average person doesn't ever hear about when they when they visit the restaurant do you have one or two of those types of of stories you could share the the story about about the hangtown fry, which is a, a menu item that we have on our menu, um, is it's an interesting story. Uh, we we don't sell a lot of the hangtown fry, but because we we just have all the ingredients, we keep it on because it's not like something you know it won't go bad or anything. Um, and it was um, the story goes that um, there's two stories. Um, it was all based in Placerville around Placerville, California, where um, uh, the Hangtown Fry consists of eggs, uh, bacon, and oysters. It's like a, a bacon and oyster frittata. And so um, one of the stories is that uh, um, men on death row in the Placerville jail would, uh, would ask for that dish as a means of prolonging their life by a few more days because to get oysters and eggs and, and bacon at the same place at the same time was really a difficult task uh, back in the 1840s and 1850s. So then that's what they'd ask for as their last meal, and it would extend their life by a couple of days. And another story uh, uh, about that dish was uh, a, gold, uh, a gold miner struck it big and uh, came to... Uh, this hotel in, in Placerville, and the guy told the the server that he's he struck it rich and that he wanted the most expensive dish that they could give him, and so 
she went, or he, they went in the back into the kitchen and asked the chef, and the chef said, well, we'll make him this and give him the most expensive dish because, again, it was so hard to get all that, all those ingredients there. So that was another one of the stories. Right. <laughs> now, now, with a dish like that, so like in the, in the, in the 1800s, I, I would assume that, yeah, it would be difficult to source all those ingredients at once. Do you still have that problem today? Um, not with that dish. I mean, we have uh, our, one of our popular uh, dishes are sand dabs, which are small little uh, flounder type kind of fish. And uh, of, of late, it's been pretty difficult to get them. Uh, usually during crab season, Fishermen will fish for crab and, and not go for sand dabs because of you know the difference in price and they get a lot more money with crab. Um, but then the crab season ended and it actually ended early, so we we're expecting uh, the fishermen to go out and, and get sand dabs. And from what our fishmonger told us, the you know the ocean where they used to get that the sand dabs is pretty much dead. Is and it it happens from time to time um, that that you know. Parts of the ocean will just completely be devoid of of, of uh, fish, and um, so we're we're not overwhelmingly shocked by this, but uh, you know it, it is something a little bit of a cause for concern because it it's been really sporadic when we've been able to get sand dabs in the last few months, and and it's something that I mean we we get twenty or thirty pounds of it uh, when we can, and then we sell out of it every day, so it's uh, it's quite popular. What would you say is, so you mentioned the trapino. Um, I know my dad really likes the clam chowder. Do you have a lot of people that go for the clam chowder when they come in there? Is that something you're known for? Or what would you say you're most well known for? Definitely the trapino, but the clam chowder comes up a close second. I mean, you know, it's because it's not an entree, it, you know, people will get the clam chowder and something else. But we do sell, we sell more clam chowders than we do chipinos just because chipino is the entree. So people start off with a clam chowder and have a salad or have, you know, some other seafood entree. But um, uh, um, we're definitely, I mean, it's it's a great dish to have. You know, you come in for on a cold, rainy day in San Francisco and you sit down and you have a martini and you have some chowder with some sourdough bread and the world seems right again. <laughs> it's great. That's almost exactly how my dad has put that, by the way. <laughs> You, I'm sure. I'm right. sure. I mean, I, I, I've heard so many stories now. I'm sure that nothing I'm telling you is original, is original content right now. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in San Francisco in the next few weeks for, for business. I'm going to have to try to, try to stop in if I can. So if I'm coming oh, in, if I'm coming in, if I'm the average Joe, I'm, I'm stopping by. What would I expect my, my visit to be like? Well, um, you know, depending on how many people you are, if you're a single person, then you're going to be sitting at the dining counter, which we have 21, a 21 seat dining counter that, you know, anybody from Joe Schmo off the street to actors, senators have sat there and, and enjoyed a meal. Um, it's, it's a quick service kind of restaurant. It's not really the place where people tend to linger a lot and, and the, the waiters are very efficient. I mean, we have a reputation for being kind of surly, but it's not really, I don't find it's really surly. I think it's more um, efficient and, and uh, direct, 
we <clears throat> we will definitely allow you to um, sit around and, and have a great time and chit chat with your friends and relax. But but most people when they come there, they understand that it's it's more of a fast moving you know fast paced kind of restaurant. Um, you know, like like I said, a lot of the a lot of the people that come in there are regulars that we've known for years and years and years. It's more of a it's more of a you know familiar kind of service. Um, whereas for people who are just there to have a business meeting or something, it's it's quick and efficient. You know, you get in, you get out, and you don't have to worry about your waiter wanting to tell you his story about uh, his day. It's just like you know, we'll do which what you need us to do, and you can be on with your day. Right. Um, one last question, and uh, sure. I'll, I think we'll end with this. <clears throat> so. I interviewed a restaurant that had been open since the 1700s and their, their general manager that I was interviewing, he mentioned that it's, you know, some of the little things, uh, luck that they had experienced over the years that helped them to stay in business for so long. Is there anything that, that you're aware of in, in the history of Tadich Grill that you could point to and say, yeah, that was a little bit of luck that, that helped us to maybe during a rough patch or helped us to stay open and, and stay relevant? Uh, I would definitely say that when the owners bought the building in San Francisco, when they moved into the our current location, that that's a hundred percent true. I mean, you look at rental prices now in, in the Bay area, it's, it's astronomical. It's ridiculous. I mean, we opened a, 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 a a Tadich Grill in, in Washington, D.C. for about, uh, and it lasted about two and a half years. Their rent was, like I, I think, I'm not sure, but it's like $40,000 a month. I mean, that's a big nut to cover. And, and it's, you know, if we were in the financial district, I mean, we see people open and close all the time around us. And it, I guarantee it's because of rent prices. And had, had our owners not had the foresight to do that, um, back in the, you know, in the, I think they bought it in, in 1981 when the pricing was, you know, the prices were pretty good. They, we wouldn't, I don't think we'd, we certainly wouldn't be where we are right now. Um, and we, uh, we may even be not, not a, not a restaurant anymore. I, I would say that's a smart move. I, I would agree. I think with, yeah. with rent prices in San Francisco, any real estate prices in San Francisco I've heard are just astronomical nowadays. And I can imagine a restaurant operating within, you know, the margins that they need. They can't sell food high enough to <laughs> stay right. open, you know? Well, there's a, I mean, I read this article about this place that opened up in the Tenderloin, which is, you know, not a nice area in San Francisco. And this company bought this building and converted it into uh, rental rental units. But the rental unit is a bed in a room. So they've got these really cool European-style bunk beds that are queen-size bunk beds, has its own flat-screen TV, has a little closet built into it, and but there's four per room, and you're shared facilities with the bathroom living area and kitchen and they're renting those beds for $1,200 a month and they're sell and they're, then they're booked. They're full. I'm like, are you kidding me? $1,200 for a bed. I'm like, Oh God, it's, it's yeah. really, it, it, in San Francisco, 
it's just it's coming to a tipping point. I know it's going to happen soon. It's just like it's unsustainable. It really is. I mean, we're we're we live about 45 minutes away from the city uh, in the East Bay, and even out here, prices are you know our house that we bought in 2003 for $450,000 is now, if, it, if we'd done no renovations at all, is now worth almost a million dollars. Oh, like, man. This is not a million-dollar house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't feel so bad about mortgage prices here anymore. <laughs> no, you should not. <laughs> yeah. Well, David, I, I really appreciate your time today, you know, talking on your day off. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, we'll make sure that we link the the website to for Tadich Grill in our description and so that people can find you easy. And uh, are you on social media as well or Yeah, we're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Well thank you so much. Um, no problem, James. It's my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Next time you're in San Francisco, you're going to have to make a special stop at Tadich Grill and try some of that clam chatter and and some of their chipino. I have links in the description for all of their social media as well as their website, so check them out. Now I'm going to step into the kitchen to talk about the recipe for this week. So this was a recipe that I made over the 4th of July. I couldn't think of a better recipe. Slipping through a cookbook from 1850, and in the cookbook I found a recipe for ice cream and fruit-flavored ice cream. So reading through the recipe, it had a lot of different suggestions of fruit that you could put in, and one of those suggestions was apple. So I thought, well... Apple ice cream isn't necessarily something I think of when I think of ice cream. And I was really curious on what that might taste like and how that would turn out. So I made essentially an apple pie filling, just uh, sliced some green apples with cinnamon and some lemon zest and lemon juice and sugar. And I let that reduce down until it was a nice almost like an applesauce consistency. And I grated the apples beforehand so they'd be smaller bits and pieces of apple in there. And then from there, I made their simple custard from from their recipe, and I followed that recipe exactly. And uh, it produced some really delicious flavors on there when I mixed in the apple. It was like apple pie meets ice cream all in one bowl. And it was absolutely delicious. So then I used our ice cream maker and just froze it up really good. In that article that I posted online, I also link out if you don't have an ice cream maker, uh, there is a, a method. I haven't tried it myself, but the video looked promising. So I think that it's worth a shot just to try this ice cream. And, uh, and so Check out that link if you don't have an ice cream maker from the article, and and that will walk you through how you can make the ice cream anyway. And what you're left with after it's frozen is a delicious, smooth apple cinnamon ice cream. And the apple was really the star of the show here. Sometimes when I've made apple desserts in the past using these recipes, you know, if you don't get the 
apple just right, it really kind of gets lost in the dish somewhere. Not the case here. The apple flavor was strong but not overpowering, and you had a good, silky, creamy mouthfeel from the frozen custard. I'd highly recommend making this recipe. It was really good. Everyone was a huge fan of it. That's all for the show this week. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure you give a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That really does help other people discover the show. It gets the word out there. You can also tell a friend or a family member and uh, let them know what you're listening to. Let them know what we're doing. It's unique and it's a lot of fun. And as always, you can find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Toasty Kettle. And uh, that's where you can find all of the latest recipes that I post. I also have a newsletter you can sign up for at ToastyKettle.com. That's where you can get a single weekly email that will have my latest recipes and podcast episodes in it so that you never miss out on what we're cooking and what we're talking about. Until next week. <laughs>